19. Intmented he not made some detestable reference to my mother, in what Lao Chan assured me was not strictly parliamentary language. As soon as I learned this I was standing near the fellow he somehow fell over, sprawling to the floor over my walnut folding chair, which snapped at the arm. It was my doing. The man said no more, picked up his loads, and was the first to arrive at Yun Chang, so that a little force was not ineffective. Indiscriminate use of force I do not advocate. However, I believe in the reverse. As a matter of fact, I rarely hit a man, but there have been occasions when, a man having refused to do what he has engaged to do, or in cases of downright insolence, a little push or a slight cut with my stick has brought about a capital feeling and gained for me immediate respect. Fang Ma Chang, off the main road, was our sleeping place. Travelers rarely take this road. Jill took it, I believe, but Baber, Davies and other took the main road. This short road was more fatiguing than the main road would have been. We again turned a dwelling house upside down. People did not at first wish to take me in so I pushed past the quarrelsome man in the doorway, took possession, and set to work to get what I wanted. Soon the people come down and gave all they could. My bed I spread near the door, and to catch a glimpse of me as I lay resting, the inhabitants, in much the same manner as people at home visit and revisit the cage of jungle-bred tigers at a menagerie, assembled and reassembled with considerable confusion, but I was beneath my curtains, so they came again, and when I ate my food by candlelight many human and tangible products of the past glared in at the doorway, after dark we all foregathered in the middle of the room and round the campfire. The conversation taking a pleasant turn from ordinary things, such as the varying distances from place to place, how many basins of rice each man could eat, and other Chinese commonplaces, to things military, everybody warmed to the subject, my military bodyguard were the chief speakers, and cleverly brought round the smoky fire, for the benefit of the thick-headed rustics who made up the fascinated audience, a modern battlefield, and made their description horrible enough. One carefully brought out his gun, waving it overhead to add to the tragedy, as he weaved a powerful story of shell splinters, blood-filled trenches, common shot, men and horses out of which all life and virtue had been blown by gunpowder. The picture was drawn around the Chinese village, and in the dim glimmer each man's thought ran swiftly to his own homestead and the green fields and the hedgerows and dwellings all blown to atoms left merely as a place of skulls. They spoke of great and horrible implements of modern warfare, invented, to their minds, by the devilry of the West. Each man chipped in with a little color, and the company broke up in fear of dreaming of the things of which they had heard, afraid to go to their straw to sleep. As I lay in my drafty corner, my own mind turned to what the next day would bring, for I was to go down to the valley of the shadow of death the dreaded Selwyn. I had read of it as a veritable death trap. Chapter XXII to Lutetium Chiangpa, dropped from 8.000 feet to 2.000 feet, Sean's meet for the first time, dangers of the Selwan Valley exaggerated, how reports get into print, start of the climb from 2.000 feet to over 8.000 feet, scenery in the valley, queer quintet of soldiers, semi-tropical temperature, my men fall to the ground exhausted, a fatiguing day, Benighted in the forest, spend the night in a hut, strong drink as it affects the Chinese, embarrassing attentions of a kindly couple, New Year festivities at Gonlanchai, the Shwali River and Watershed, magnificent range of mountains, arrival at Tenchu, no Chinese, I knew, 
lived in the valley, but I had yet to learn that so soon as the country drops to say less than 4.000 feet the Chinese consider it to unhealthy a spot for him to pass his days in. The reason why Shans control the valley island therefore, not hard to find, and owing to the probability that what European travelers have written about the unhealthiness of this cell one valley has been based on information obtained from Chinese, its bad name may be easily accounted for. The next morning, as I descended, I saw much malarial mist rising, but, after having on a subsequent visit spent two days and two nights at the lowest point, I am in a position to say that conditions have been very much exaggerated, and that places quite as unhealthy are to be found between Lutetium Chiangpa the town at the foot, by the bridge and the low-lying Shan states leading on to Burma, a good deal of the country to the north of the Yuanman province, towards the Tibetan border is so high-lying and so cold that the Yuan names Chinese is afraid to live there, and the fact that in the Shan states, so low-lying and sultry, he is so readily liable to fever, prevents him from living there. These places, through reports coming from the Chinese, are, as a matter of course, dubbed as unhealthy. The average inhabitant that island Chinese strikes a medium between 4.000 feet and 10.000 feet to log in and avoids going into a lower country between March and November if he can, to pass the valley and go to Gonlan Kai 4.800 feet, passing the highest point at nearly 9.000 feet 140 li distant from Fang Ma Chan was our ambition for the day, starting in the early morning. I had a pleasant walk over an even road leading to a narrowing gorge, through which a heartbreaking road led to the valley beyond. Two and a half hours it took me, in my foreign boots, to cover the twenty lee. I fell five times over the smooth stones. The country was bare, desolate, lonely for people only were met over the entire distance. But in the dreaded valley several trees were ablaze with blossom and oranges shone like small balls of gold in the rising Sunday children playing in between the trees ran away and hid as they saw me. Although I was fifty yards from them they did not know what it was, and they had never seen one. Farther down I caught up my men, Lao Chang and Shanks, and pleasant speculations were entered into as to what Singaibana was like. They were particularly interested in Singapore because I had lived there, and after I had given them a general description of the place and explained how the Chinese had gone ahead there. I pointed out as well as I could with my limited vocabulary that if the people of Yuan Man only had a conscience, and would only get out of the rut of the ages, they, too, might go ahead, explaining incidentally to them that as lights of the church at Tong Shuan Fu, it was their sacred duty to raise the standard of moral living among their countrymen wherever they might wander. Their general acquiescence was astounding, and in the next town, Lutetium Chiangpa, these two men put their theory into practice and almost caused a riot by offering 250 cash for a fowl for which the vendor blandly asked 1.000, but they got the chicken and at their own price, too. As I was thus gently in soliloquy, I first heard and then caught sight of the river below the unnavigable cell one, 2.000 feet lower than either the Meccan or the Shwali which we were to cross two days later. It is a pity the cell one was not preserved as the boundary between Burma and China. Gradually, as we approached the steep stone steps leading down there too, I saw one of the cleverest pieces of native engineering in Asia the double suspension bridge which here spans the cell one, the only one I had seen in my trip across the empire. The first span, some 240 feet by 36 feet, reaches from the natural rock, 
down which a vertical path zigzags to the foot, and the second span then runs over to the busy little town of Lutetium Chiangpan. Here, then, where are we in the most dreaded spot in western China? If you stay a night in this valley, rumor says, you go to bed for the last time, Chinese are afraid of it. Europeans dare not linger in it. Malaria stalks abroad for her victims, and snatches everyone who dallies in his journey to the topside mountain village of Feng Shui Ling. The river is 2.000 feet above the sea, Feng Shui Ling is nearly 9.000 feet. It was 10 o'clock as I pulled over my stool and took tea in the crowded shop at Lutetium Chiangpan. I saw Shans here for the first time. The village now, however, is anything but a Shan village. Of the people in the immediate vicinity I counted only 10 typical Shans, and of the company around me in this popular tea house 21 out of 28 were Chinese, including 10 Mohammedans. It was, however, easy to see that several of these were of Shan extraction, who, although they had features distinctly un-Chinese, had adopted the Chinese language and custom. A party of Tibetans were here in the charge of a lama, in an inner court, and scampered off as I rose to snap their photographs. This was a very low altitude for Tibetans to reach. Whilst I sipped my tea the local horse dealer wanted so very much to sell me a pony cheap. He offered it for forty tails. I offered him five. It was gone in the back, was blind in the left eye, and was at least seventeen years old. The man smiled as I refused to buy and told me that my knowledge of horse flesh was wonderful. The road then led up to a plain, where paths branched in many directions to the hills. Men either going to the market or coming from it leaned on their loads to rest under enormous banyans and to watch me as I passed. Horses browsed on the hillsides. One of my soldiers had laid in provisions for the day, and ran along with his gun muzzle forward over one shoulder and four lengths of sugar cane over the other. Plowmen with their buffaloes halted in the muddy fields to gaze admiringly upon me, women ran scared from the path when my pony let out at a casual passerby who tickled him with a thin bamboo, maiden hair ferns grew in great profusion, showing that we were getting into a warmer climate, streams rushed swiftly under the stone roadway from diked up dams to facilitate the irrigation, at which the Chinese are such past masters, all was smiling and warm and bright, dispelling in one's mind all sense of gloom and breeding an optimistic outlook. We were now a party of nine my own three men. An extra coolie I had engaged to rush tent you in three days from Yongchang, for soldiers, and the paymaster of the crowd. We still had ninety li to cover, so that when we left the shade of two immense trees which sheltered me and my perspiring men, one of the soldiers agreed that everyone had to clear from our path. We brooked no interception until we reached the entrance to the climb, where I met two Europeans of the customs staff at Tenchu, who had come down here to camp out for the Chinese New Year holiday. I knew that these men were not Englishmen. I was so thirsty, and the best they could do was to keep a man talking in the sun outside their well-equipped tent. How I could have done with a drink. A tributary of the Selwan flows down the ravine. Too terrible a climb to the top was it for me to take notes. I got too tired. Everything was magnificently green and nature's reproduction seemed to be going on whilst one gazed upon her. But the natural glories of this beautiful gorge, with a dainty touch of the tropical mingling with the mighty aspect of jungle forest, with glistening cascades and rippling streams, where all was bountiful and exquisitely beautiful, failed to hold one spellbound, for since I had left Taylifo I had rarely been out of sight of some of the best scenery on earth.
yet vegetation was very different to that which we had been passing. There were now banyans, palms, plantains, and many ferns, trees and shrubs and other products of warmer climates, which one found in Burma. What impressed me farther up was the marvelous growth of bamboos, some rising 120 feet and 130 feet at the bend, in their various tints of green looking like delicate feathers against the haze of the skyline, upon which houses built of bamboo from floor to roof seemed temporarily perched whilst others seemed to be tumbling down into the valley. This spot was the nearest approach to real jungle I had seen in China, but whilst we were climbing laboriously through this densely covered country, over opposite it seemed no more than a stone's throw the hills were almost bare, save for the isolated cultivation of the peasantry at the base. But then came a division, appearing suddenly to view farther along around a bend, and I saw a continuation of the range, rising even higher, and with a tree growth even more magnificent, denser and darker still. Here I came upon a party of soldiers with foreign military peak caps on their heads, which they wore outside over their Chinese caps. In fact, the only two other garments besides these Chinese caps were the distinguishing marks of the military coats they had, but they had been discarded at the foot of the climb, rolled into a one bundle, and tied together with a piece of ribbon generally worn by the carrier to keep his trousers tight. We were now in summer heat and this military quintet made a peculiar sight in dusty trousers, peak caps and straw sandals, with the perspiration streaming freely down their naked backs as they plodded upwards under a pitiless sun. Thus were they clad when I met them, but catching sight of my distinguished person, mistaking me for a guan, they immediately made a rush for the man carrying the tunics, to clothe themselves for my presence with seemly respectability. But a word from my boy put their minds at rest my own military word are far in the rear. A couple of them then came forward to me sniggeringly, satisfied that they were not to be reported to Peking or wherever their commander-in-chief may have his residence they probably had no more idea than I had. By the side of a roaring waterfall, in a spot which looked a very fairyland in surroundings of reproductive green, we all sat down to rest. The air was cool and the path was damp and water tumbling everywhere down from the rocks formed pretty cascades and rivulets. We heard the clang of the hatchets, and soon came upon men felling timber and sawing up trees into coffin boards. We were in the valley of the shadow, and it was the finest coffin center of the district. I took my boots off to wade through water which overran the pathway, and just beyond my men, exhausted with their awful toil, lay flat on their backs to rest, they were deadbeat. One pointed up to the perpendicular cliff momentarily closed his eyes and looked at me in disgust. I gently remonstrated. It was not my country. I told him, it was the emperor's. And after a time we reached the top. Shadows were lengthening. In the distance we saw the mountains upon which we had spent the previous night, whose tops were gilded by the setting Sunday down below all was already dark. A cold wind blew the trees bending wearily towards the valley. And still we plodded on. We had come to shout the ho. 115 li instead of the 140 I had been led to believe my men would cover. Every room in the hut was full, we were told, but the next place with some unpronounceable name, 15 li farther down, would give us good housing for the night. Lao Chang and I resolved to go on, tired though we were. Before I resolved on this plan I stopped to take a careful survey of the exact situation of the sheltering hollow in which we meant to pass the night. The sun was fast sinking, the dust of the road lay grey and thick about my feet, above me the heavens were reddening in sunset glory, 
The landscape had no touch of human life about it save our own two solitary figures, and the place, fifteen lee away, lay before me as a dream of a good night rather than a reality. Then on again we plotted, and yelled our intentions to the men behind. From the brow of the hill we descended with extreme rapidity down, down into a valley which sent up a damp, oppressive atmosphere. Through the trees I could see one lovely ball of deep, rich red, painting the earth as it sank in a beauty exquisite beyond all else. Four men met us, stared suspiciously, thought we were deaf, and yelled that the place was twenty lee away, and that we had better return to the brow of the hill. But we left them, and went still farther down. In the hush that prevailed I was unaccountably startled to see the form of the woman gliding towards me in the twilight. She came out of the valley carrying firewood. She spoke kindly to my man, and invited me to spend the night in her house nearby. I was for the moment vaguely awed by her very quiescence, and gazed wondering, doubting, bewildered. What was the little truth? Could I not from such things get free, even in inland China? The red light of the sunken sun playing round her comely figure dazzled me, it is admitted, and I followed her with a sigh of mingled dread and desire for rest. Shall I say the shadow of the smile upon her lips deepened and softened with an infinite compassion? Dogs rounded upon me as I entered the bamboo hut stuck on the side of the hill they knew I had no right there. Inside a man was nursing a squalling baby, our escort was its mother, the man her husband, so I was safe. The place was swept up. Unnecessary gear was taken away. Fire was kindled. Tea was brewed. Rice was prepared. And whilst in shaving for we were to reach Tenchu on the morrow I dodged here and there to escape the smoke and get the most light. Giving my hospitable host a good deal of fun in so doing, every possible preparation was made for my comfort and convenience by the untiring woman at whose invitation I was there. Their attentions embarrassed me. Every movement. Every look. Every gesture. Every wish was anticipated, so that I had no more discomfort than a roaring wind and a low temperature about the region which no one could help. It was bitterly cold. In front of the fire I sat in an overcoat among the crowd drinking tea. Whilst the soldiers drank wine they bought five cash worth. Had my lamp oil run out, I should have bought liquor and tried to burn it instead. Soon the spirit began to talk, and these braves of the Chinese army got on terms of freest familiarity telling me what an all-round excellent fellow I was, and how pleased they were or that I had to suffer as well as they, but they never forgot themselves, and I allowed them to wander on uncontradicted and unrestrained, after a weary night of tossing in my pukai, with a roaring nail blowing through the latticed bamboo, behind which I lay so poorly sheltered, we started in good spirits, 25 li farther we reached Gonlanchai 4.800 feet, February 9th, 1910, New Year's morning, nothing could be bought, everywhere the people said, come I, come I, and although we had traveled the 25 li over a terrible road, with a fearful gradient at the end, we could not get anyone to make tea for us, it is distinctly against the Chinese custom to sell anything at New Year time, of course, we had to boil our own water and make our own tea, a larger crowd than usual gathered around me because of the general holiday, and as I write now I am seated in my folding chair with all the reprobates near to me men gazing emptily, women who have rushed from their houses combing their hair and nursing their babies, the beggars with their poles and bowls, numberless urchins, all open-mouthed and curious, these are kept from crowding over me by the two soldiers, who the day before had come on ahead to book rooms in the place, 
I stayed at Gonlanchai on another occasion, then I found a good room, but later learned that it was a horse inn, the yard of which was taken up by 59 pack animals with their loads, pegs were as usual driven into the ground in parallel rows, a pair of ponies being tied to each not by the head, but by the feet, a 9 inch length of rope being attached to the off foreleg of one and the near foreleg of the other, the animals facing each other in rows, and eating from a common supply in the center, everyone in the small town was busy doing and driving, very anxious that I should be made comfortable, which might have been the case but for some untiring musician who was traveling with the caravan, and seemed to be one of that species of humankind who never sleeps, his notes, however, were fairly in harmony, but when it runs on to 3 o'clock a.m. and one knows that he has to be again on the move by 5, even first-rate Chinese music is apt to be somewhat disturbing. From the Salwan Shwali watershed I got a fine view of the mountains I had crossed yesterday. Some ten miles or so to the north was the highest peak in the range Kaolikung I think it is called conical shaped and clear against the sky. And some 13.000 feet high. So far as I could judge, an easy stage brought me to Tenchu. I stayed here a day only. Mr. Embury, of the China Inland Mission, a countryman of my own, kindly putting me up. But Tenchu as one of the quartet of open courts in the province, is well known, it is only a small town, however, and one was surprised to find it as conservative a town as could be found anywhere in the province, despite the fact that foreigners have been here for many years, and at the present time there are no less than seven Europeans here, I was glad of a rest here, from Talifu had been most fatiguing, chapter XXIV, the Lisu tribe of the Selwan Valley travel up the Selwan Valley, my motive for traveling and how I travel. Valley not a death trap. Meet the Lisu. Buddhistic beliefs. Late Mr. G. Litton as a traveler. Resemblance in religion to kitchens. Ghost of ancestral spirits. Lisu graves. Description of the people. Racial differences. John the Baptist's hardship. The crossbow and author's previous experience. Plans for subsequent travel fall through. Mission work among the Lisu. On my return journey into a young man. I stopped at Lutetium Chiangpan, BB and left my men at the inn there while I traveled for two days along the Selwan Valley. My journey was taken with no other motive than that of seeing the country, and also to test the accuracy of the reports respecting the general unhealthy nature of this valley of the shadow of death. The people here were friendly, despite the fact that my route was always far away from the main road, and although my entire kit was a single traveling rug for the nights, I was able to get all I wanted. Lao Chang accompanied me, and together we had an excellent time. I might as well say first of all that the idea of this part of the Selwan Valley being what people say it is in the matter of a death trap is absolutely false, with the exception of the early morning mist common in every low-lying region in hot countries. There was, so far as I could see, nothing to fear. During the second day, through beautiful country and beautiful weather, I came across some people who I presumed were early Sioux and I regretted that my films had all been exposed. The Lisu tribe is undoubtedly an offshoot from the people who inhabit southeastern Tibet, although none of them anywhere in Yunnan and they are found in many places in central and eastern Yunnan bear any traces of Buddhistic belief, which is universal, of course, in Tibet. The late Mr. G. Lin, who at the time he was acting as British consul at Tenchu traveled somewhat extensively among them says that their religious practices closely resemble those of the Kitchens, 
who believe in numerous gnats or spirits which cause various calamities, such as failure of crops and physical ailments, unless propitiated in a suitable manner. According to him, the most important spirit is the ancestral ghost. Lisu graves are generally in the fields near the villages, and over them is put the cross bow, rice bags and other articles used by the deceased. It is probably from foundations such as these, writes Mr. George Forrest, who accompanied Mr. Lytton on an excursion to the upper Selwyn, and who wrote up the journey after the death of his companion, that the fabric of Chinese ancestor worship was constructed, a view which I doubt very much indeed. I am of the opinion that the Lisu may be closely allied to the Lola or the Nusu, of whom I have spoken in the chapters in Book I dealing with the tribes around Tung and even the Miao bear a distinct racial resemblance. They are of bony physique, high cheekbones, and their skin is nearly of the same almost sepia color. The Lisu form practically the whole of the population of the upper Selwan Valley from about lat. 25 degrees 30 to 27 degrees 30, and they have spread in considerable numbers along the mountains between the Shweli and the Aralwadi, and are found also in the Shan states. Those on the upper Selwan in the extreme north for upper savages, but where they have become more or less civilized have shown themselves to be an enterprising race in the way of emigration, of the savages, the villages are almost always at war with one another, and many have never been farther from their huts than a day's march will take them, the chief object of their lives being apparently to keep their neighbors at a distance, they are exceedingly lazy, they spend their lives doing as little in the way of work as they must, eating, drinking, squatting about round the hearth telling stories of their valor with the crossbow, and their excitement is provided by an occasional expedition to get wood for their crossbows and poison for their arrows, or a stock of salt and wild honey. Mr. Forrest, in his paper which was read before the Royal Geographical Society in June, 1908, speaks of this wild honey as an agreeable sweetening as a change, but that after a few days constant partaking of it the European palate rejects it as nauseous and almost disgusting, and adds that it has escaped the biblical commentators that one of the principal hardships which John the Baptist must have undergone was his diet of wild honey. In another part of his paper the writer says, speaking of the crossbow to which I have referred, every Lisu with any pretensions to sheep possesses at least one of these weapons one for everyday use in hunting, the other for war. The children play with miniature crossbows. The men never leave their huts for any purpose without their crossbows. When they go to sleep the nutcrum is hung over their heads, and when they die it is hung over their graves. The largest crossbows have a span of fully five feet, and require a pull of thirty-five pounds to string them. The bow is made of a species of wild mulberry, of great toughness and flexibility. The stock, some four feet long in the war bows, is usually of wild plumwood. The string is of plated hemp, and the trigger of bone. The arrow, of 16 to 18 inches, is of split bamboo, about four times the thickness of an ordinary knitting needle, hardened and pointed. The actual point is bare for a quarter to one-third of an inch. Then for fully an inch the arrow is stripped to half its thickness, and on this portion the poison is placed. The poison used is invariably a decoction expressed from the tubers of a species of aconitum which grows on those ranges at an altitude of 8.000 to 10.000 feet. The reduction in thickness of the arrow where the poison is placed causes the point to break off in the body of anyone whom it strikes, and as each carries enough poison to kill a cart horse a wound is invariably fatal. Free and immediate incision is the usual remedy when wounded on a limb or fleshy part of the body, 
B.C. Sometime after I was traveling in these regions I made arrangements to visit the mission station of the China Inland Mission, some days from Yuan Manfu, where a special work has recently been formed among the Lisu tribe, owing to a later arrival at the capital than I had expected. However, I could not keep my appointment, and as there were reports of trouble in that area the British Consul General did not wish me to travel off the main road. It is highly encouraging to learn that a magnificent missionary work is being done among the Lisu, all the more gratifying because of the enormous difficulties which have already been overcome by the pioneering workers. At least one European, if not more, has mastered the language, and the China Inland Mission are expecting great things to eventuate. It is only by long and continued residence among these peoples, throwing in one's lot with them and living their life that any absolutely reliable data regarding them will be forthcoming, and this so few, of course, are able to do. Footnotes, footnote PC, the poisoned arrows and the crossbow are used also by the Miao, and the author has seen very much the same thing among the Salkai of the Malay Peninsula. Fifth Journey T-N-G-Y-U-A-H-M-O-M-I-N-T-B-H-A-N-O in Upper Burma Chapter XXV. Last Stages of Long Journey. Characteristics of the Country. Sham and Kitchens. Authors dream of civilization, British pride, end of paved roads, mountains cease, a confession of foiled plans, Nandian as a questionable fort, about the Shans, village squabble, and how it ended, absence of disagreement in Shan language, charming people, but lazy, experience with Shan servant, at Chuchung, New Year festivities, after dinner diversions, author as a medico, ingratitude of the Chinese, some instances, the Shan, the kitchen and the abominable beetle quid, that quid which makes the mouth look bloody, broadens the lips, lays bare and blackens the teeth, and makes the women hideous. Such are the unfailing characteristics of the country upon which we are now entering. By the following stages I worked my way wearily to the end of my long walking journey, length height of stage above sea first day Nandi and 90 li, 5.300 feet second day Chuchan Kang May 80 li, fourth day Shio Singai 60 li, 5th day menu in 60 li, 2.750 feet 6th day Patiao Chai approximate, 1.200 feet 7th day Mount Sao 55 English 650 feet 8th day Mamo Singai Miles, 350 feet Shans here monopolize all things, Chinese, although of late years drawn to this low-lying area, do not abound in these parts, and the Shan is therefore left pretty much to himself, and the pleasant 8-day march from Tenchu to Bamo the metropolis of Upper Burma, probably offers to the traveler objects and scenes of more varying interest than any other stage of the tramp from far away Chongqing, to the Englishman, daily getting nearer to the end of his long, wearying walk, and going for the first time into Upper Burma, incidentally to realize again the dream of civilization and comfort and contact with his own kind, leaving old China in the rear. There instinctively came that inexpressible patriotic pride every Britisher must feel when he emerges from the Middle Kingdom and sets his foot again on British territory. The benefits are too numerous to cite, you must have come through China, and have had for.